Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we are rapidly approaching the end of the year, which means that holiday season is almost upon us. And I'm going to be stuffing your stock in with lots of podcast goodness as we come to the end of the year. I've had four tapings this week alone. I believe we have five episodes in the queue right now. And I'm going to try to up the output, increase the frequency through the end of this year, and strive to set a new record in 2018 for the most Super 70 Sports Podcast episodes in a calendar year. I think we can do it. I've got players and writers and television guys all lined up for you. Lots of exciting stuff. And we are going to start a strong stretch run to the end of the year today with my favorite basketball television analyst of all time. I've really been looking forward to this one, so let's get right to it. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the coach of the 1975 ABA champion Kentucky Colonels, a two-time NBA Coach of the Year, and a Basketball Hall of Famer, Hubie Brown. Hubie, how are you? Fine, thanks. Let's go back to the beginning of your career, because your career has been so long and distinguished that we could probably fill several podcasts with the things that you've witnessed and accomplished. So I'll start with your NBA coaching career, which a lot of people may not know began as an assistant with those great Milwaukee Bucks teams of the early 1970s. How did that opportunity arise? Well, I was a high school coach in... Uh, New Jersey for nine years where I coached assistant football, head basketball, head baseball. Then I went to William and Mary for one year as an assistant and then Duke for four. The head coach for the Milwaukee Bucks was Larry Costello. At that time, they won a championship in 71 with a very young team, everyone being under 23 except for Oscar Robertson. That was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bobby Danridge. Well, Larry and I played together three years at Niagara and uh, when we were in college, and then we also played baseball together, so we were very close. Uh, Tom Nasalki, his assistant coach, left after the championship year and went to the ABA to coach a Dallas team that eventually folded and became the San Antonio Spurs. So I replaced him. But that's how it all happened, uh, because of friendships, and then also the fact that we played on you know, three great teams, and then we also had three good, very good baseball teams. So what was it like jumping in your first NBA coaching job, and you've got two inner circle Hall of Fame talents uh, on that team? What was it like coaching Kareem and the Big O? Well, first of all, you realize one thing, that the difference in talent is incredible, because at that time you only had 12 guys on a team, the last guy on a team was probably better than anybody you had at the college level. Now, that's uh, uh, people have trouble with that, but uh, that's the truth because they would not be on the Milwaukee Bucks at that time. You're coming off of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar winning the MVP his rookie year, his second year, the third year, that was 1973, my first year in the league. He loses it to Dave Cowens. Then in 74, where we 
lose the seventh game of the uh, NBA Finals to Boston because we lost Lucius Allen for the entire playoffs, our point guard with an ACL. Uh, now, uh, Kareem wins it again that year. So he wins it three out of four years, the MVP. When you're talking about the best all-around player in the history of the game up until that time, Oscar Robertson's name would be in the top two, depending upon who else you thought it was. So Oscar at that time is 35, 36 years old at the end, but still one of the highest IQs that you could ever imagine about the game, and then also could back it up even at that late bit. Plus, he is the president of the Players Association. So you're dealing with the most powerful guy in the league. Then you had Bobby Danridge, who should be in the Hall of Fame, as one of the greatest small forwards ever to play. It was a very young team, except for Oscar. But what they did, the first day of practice, me coming from high school and college, and even at Duke, as good as we were, the first day of double sessions, open your eyes to the speed of the two hours and of the speed of the two hours at night, double sessions. The speed that everything was run at, and then the talent level. The game was played not only with better quickness, but better execution, and then also the, the fact that they, the passing and the chemistry. Uh, it, was, it was a, I didn't get my master's degree in basketball there. I got a master's in doctor's, doctor's degree in two years because not only of the excellence of the team and the chemistry and that winning and accountability was first before anything else especially when you had Kareem and Oscar who could have been disruptive and people would have accepted it but they did not they were all about winning and that's what settled my mind for the rest of my coaching at the, at the NBA level and ABA was that the accountability factor and the, and the amount of work that has to go in on a daily basis, no matter how much talent you have. Everyone, chemistry and accountability sounds simple, but very difficult at that level. Well, let's talk about that just a little bit. Your, your reputation, of course, through the years is one of a guy who was very demanding, tough on your players, could you discuss a little bit your coaching philosophy, not in terms of the X's and O's, but from the standpoint of managing athletes, managing personalities, and getting the most out of your talent? Well, first of all, we had few rules. We had four very big rules. Number one, you'd be on time. And if you're not on time, we give you five minutes. Then at the end of the five minutes, the bus leaves, the train leaves, the plane leaves, or practice begins. You're fine from that time on. Doesn't matter who you are. Number two, you have to work hard. And by that I mean this. If we feel like you're out on the floor and you're not doing at a level of play that we demand, well, what we do is we call you over and we give you two minutes. Now, I don't care what guy asks you two questions. Are you sick? Are you injured? If you're not, you got two minutes because at the end of the two minutes, if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, we take you out and you do not get back in the game. We don't care who you are and we don't care what the game is because the guy behind you is going to play and do and expect, we expect him to perform. The third thing is you got to know your job. 
that are plenty of guys who come into professional sports just like who come into high school and college. There's a thing called academic IQ and a thing called athletic IQ. Athletic IQ is the key here because a lot of these guys, you might say, well, his academic, no, forget about academic IQ because I had a team where I had one guy on the team with a genius IQ who was a All-American, college All-American, and then was very big in politics with 160 IQ. And I had another guy on that starting team with a 74 academic IQ, except he was the best player and scoring over 20 points a game. So to me, uh, I don't want to hear about low academics or the guy's a bad student. I want to see the the athletic IQ as he takes on the seven sets with five plays within each set, the out-of-bounds plays aside, and then the changing defenses of where we are pressing full court, three-quarter court, half court, and then playing box and one, triangle and two. So with us, being on time, playing hard, knowing your job, we're three. And then the last thing is, do you know when to pass and when to shoot? Now you say, well, what's that all about? Well, that's the thing that disrupts all teams at all levels, where you have a volume shooter who overshoots and misses the chemistry of making the extra pass, or when you are a great player, you understand when you're double teamed and you give it up and you reward the big guys who are running on the break or the big guys who are doing all of the hard work, rebounding and blocking out, that everybody feels that you are a team player. Now, that sounds easy. But I just want you to think about this. I interviewed Oscar Robertson uh, on when I was on CBS, and it was a uh, at, when they had the top 50 players in Cleveland and of all time. And I was interviewing Oscar, and I said to him, Oscar, when you came into the league, you had led the NCAA in scoring three straight years. You came into the NBA, you're one of the leading scorers in the league because you averaged 30 points. You are one of the greatest assist players in the league because you average right around 10 or more. I said, you also were first team All-NBA, naturally the All-Star team, and you were first team All-Defense. Now, what did you find that you had to adjust to in the NBA? Now, just think about this. He's on live television. He looks right into the TV and he says, the toughest thing is to know when to pass and when to shoot. How about that one? Interesting. And not something that your average fan necessarily would think. Well, see, that's what we, uh, I would always bring in things that happened with that team when in my first meeting, because every time that you took over a team after that, Kentucky Colonels, Atlanta Hawks, New York Knicks, and then Memphis, you have to take over a bad situation and you have to change the bad situation by accountability and then also the chemistry. Everybody has to be on the same page. Now, all of that comes with discipline. Now, when you take over a bad situation, the person that's responsible is the head coach for setting the tone and then backing it up. The worst thing in pro sports or even at the college level 
is, well, I'll just stay with the pro level. Uh, if you find people, you don't give them back their money. If, if you uh, discipline the fourth player on the team, but the first player on the team and the second player are doing the same thing, but only the fourth player uh, is the one who's punished, well, then naturally you lose the locker room. Right. You lose the respect factor. So the big thing that you have to always remember is that when guys at the end of the game, for the guys who had great nights, on the nights that you win, you go around, you shake everybody's hand because you only have 10 minutes before you have to do the press. So you go around, you, you shake every guy's hand, and then for the guys that had great nights, whatever it was, defensive night, stopping a great player, or maybe uh, a rebounding record or, or terrific night, we have the guys stand up and we all applaud. Now, people say, you did that at the NBA level? Absolutely. Because the coaches understand what the individual players did when you were the underdog most nights while you were changing the atmosphere in this locker room towards winning. Don't tell me about talent because you can't win in that unless you develop the talent. Now, when you do clinics for coaches, because I did it for 40 years here in the United States, and fortunately around the world, there was a great experience um, uh, doing clinics abroad in Europe and the Far East and places like this. I always tell them one thing. To start off, if you're going to be a coach, you have to understand that in high school and college, the college coach and high school coach win all the games. And the players lose the games. Just read any article and you'll see that. But if you come into professional sports, you and your wife and your family have to understand that the players win every game and the coaching staff loses the games <laughs> that they lose. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, you now have a fighting chance of lasting a long time period. Because you are responsible at the pro level. My, my first job with uh, the Milwaukee Bucks was Larry said, look, uh, you got to coach one end, I coach the other. You have to be ready because back then we only had two coaches and you were the advanced scout also as the assistant. Uh, you had to take care of players 9, 10, and 11, and 12. So I said, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, because the first eight guys were basically an eight-man rotation. Players 9, 10 get in, and 11 and 12 basically up mop-up time, and they get limited minutes. Now, players 9, 10, 11, and 12 are mad every single day that they're getting screwed because they're not playing, no matter how good the Milwaukee Bucks were at that time. Now, think about that a second. So when you are the head coach, you have to understand the guys who are not playing have to be involved in everything and practices with the idea that in case there's a serious injury, that they have to step in and give quality time, playoff minutes time, especially when we're in the playoffs and there's no drop-off. So the very first week of double sessions in Milwaukee, we had a backup center to Kareem from Western Kentucky, and we called him the cement mixer. He was a terrific guy. 6'10", 275, one of the toughest players physically I ever met in pro basketball. After the two hours of practice in the morning and in the afternoon, 
he would then run the stairs in this college gym that we were practicing in. He would run the stairs, run the stairs, run the stairs so many times. So finally, after watching him do this three times, I said to him, uh, Dick, practices here are very, very strenuous. I said, after two hours, I said, why are you running the stairs? Now, this is great because, see, this is a winning team. Coach, when the big fella goes down with the migraines, the mixer's got to play 48. We were 9-0 and in the two years when Kareem had the severe migraines where he couldn't play, and Dick Cunningham played 48 minutes, and we were 9-0. and Get it? Yeah. But how special is is he as a player for having that attitude? I would think a lot of guys, that's not the norm, probably, in many cases. Well, that's what you have to respect. See, when you take over a situation, I was a, an assistant going to a great team. But if you take over a situation where there might be great expectations, but you don't have the athletic talent, and every night you're the underdog, according to the spread out of Vegas, they all know if they're the underdog or not. How do you get them to perform? Well, naturally, you get them by goals. They have to have goals on a daily basis of where they're going to be for a week. We put that on the board every day before they go out on the court so that they know which days they're going to be off, how long practice is, and what time we're going to be going. Because the pro player has a family. He's got a family to worry about, kids going to school, et cetera, and so forth, the majority of them. So consequently, on a daily basis, they have to go. Then we put them into groups. When we're taking over a bad situation and we want to get the uh, 41 wins, 41-41 will get you in the playoffs in the East, but not in the West, okay? But if you can get the 500, if you can win two out of three games at home, and one out of three games on the road, you can get to that number. Then, if you are a playoff team, you want to win four out of five games at home and two out of five games on the road, and now what's going to happen is you've got a shot at 50 games. So uh, that's how we motivate our team, and this is on the board every single day of where we are in A, in attendance, B, in a three-game group, or a five-game group at home and away, it's on the board. See, they have to understand so that their level of excitement or depression stays the same. So they see that if we did blow a game, we're still within the short-term and long-term goals here. Then we have goals within the game itself. Because if you are a team and you are a underdog, Things that have to go on the board and at every timeout with us are where are we in fast breaks on offense, second chance opportunities, and deflections defensively because that's going to dictate how we're working. Then on the other side is where are we on our opponents, fast breaks, second chance, and their deflections. Who's out working who? And we do this at every timeout. I say, you mean to tell me your guys are that organized? That's exactly right. Because you have to do this. You must teach losing teams how to win and not worry about the top, the tough love. Because winning players understand the organization and they understand the demanding every single day. The guys who are the middle of the rotors 
are not going to jump onto your side until you prove to them that this is a winning style and an exciting style. And then the losers, they never get it. And that's when you have to move players, no matter how good their talent is, because they probably have off-court problems, whether it's the drugs, whether it's the drinking, whether it's domestic, whatever the problems are. And they are selfish players. So as you're moving along, not everybody stays on the train. At the end of the year, the coaching staff and management, now you sit down and now you decide who's going to be on the train and what we need to get to the next level. Now, I know all of that is a lot, but that's how people will always accept the A-personality coach versus the coach who's laid back, and a lot of them can be laid back and still demand all of that, but then you have coaches at the high school, college, and NBA level who want to be loved first, and they'll be short-term in their jobs because that player... I don't care how good he is, when he comes to that practice, the first day of practice, he wants to see organization, he wants to see practices to the minute, so there's no waste of time. He wants to see his talent be developed because he's talented or he wouldn't be in the league. And if he sees that coaching staff, that they can take his potential and take him to a whole new level by giving him two new offensive moves and then making him understand the defenses at the NBA. The defenses at the NBA, you have to understand, you can't do the same thing every time down the floor because no one guy can guard another guy in this league and stop him. Not the great players. You're not stopping the great players one-on-one. What you have to do then is whether you trap and you rotate Now, it's not the first rotation out of the trap because the first pass against the good teams, the defenses will always make that first rotation. But on the second rotation out of the trap, as the ball moves two places, now that's how you judge good defenses in the NBA, especially as the game goes on. Can they make the two rotations out of their defensive traps because of the physical Outlook output that they have to do over 48 minutes. Now, without getting into a lot of X's and O's, uh, I, I know I, I just uh, talked uh, an awful lot. No, no, it's fascinating. Take me back to 74 when you get the Colonel's job because that, that's your first head coaching job in, in pro basketball. You jump over to the ABA, one of the great franchises in, in ABA history, Take me back to that season because you have said, you've been very open through the years, that that was the best team that you ever coached, and a lot of people think that that was the best ABA team ever, period. Well, I would never uh, say that, uh, the last statement, because there were a lot of great ABA teams. We had to merge because the ABA, over the three previous drafts, got all of the majority of the best players, and they were within the league. So the talent level. Now, you go back and check the last two years of the ABA in 75 and 76 in the exhibition games. The ABA won over 60 games, and the NBA only won 30. Now, think about that a second. The ABA would play you in any arena that you designed, 
as long as you paid them the fee of traveling and, and giving them a bonus. Because, A, we were that good, all the teams were that good, the upper five, and they could play with the NBA, but naturally only had local television. So when they had local television, it wasn't national. So consequently, guys were not getting their due until the NBA opened it up and started to play all these exhibition games. People were seeing that the AB teams were dominating uh, the NBA teams for whatever reason. So now when you say taking over Kentucky, they had been in the finals five times out of uh, seven years. I think when we got there or four times and they didn't win. So when we took it over, there were only 10 guys on a team in the ABA. So we had four new players coming to this team along with two new coaches, myself and Stan Albeck, who was an assistant coach with San Diego where Will Chamberlain was coaching at the time. So he came with us. Now, you had to understand, I'm coming from two points of basket all my life, high school, college, and NBA, to a league that has a three-point shot. Right. And then also that you can play zone. And also that you don't foul out. Uh, if you got six fouls, they had a great rule. And why, why the NBA doesn't put this in, I don't know, but it's, it was a great rule. Now, the three-point shot they finally uh, brought in in 79, uh, but let's face it, we, we merged in 76. Uh, when you think about it, this rule, people pay so much money to come to the games. Well, in the ABA, we were trying to keep the best players in the game. So the rules committee said, if you got six fouls, you could stay in the game, but the next foul that you committed would be a technical foul and the ball out of bounds. So now you could play your best player if he fouled out. The fans are happy because you could keep him in the game if you wanted to and then play him offense, defense if you wanted to, or just leave him in for the overtime period so that the fan was never cheated out of traveling, you know, a lot of miles and paying nothing like we pay today for an NBA game. So that would help the NBA today because then you would have, the best players would stay in and the game could still be figured out with the coaches. So when you did this, you had to adjust your mentality in the last three minutes of an NBA game because shots from the corner and out on the wing were three-point shots and not two-point shots. So you had to advance your IQ of the strategies of the game by coaching in the ABA. Now, fortunately for me, there were three guys on this team who eventually came into the NBA Hall of Fame or into the Naismith Hall of Fame. Yeah, Dan Issel got in first, and then uh, Artis Gilmore, our center. Dan Issel was our power forward. And Louis Dampier was one of the greatest three-point shooters ever to play basketball. That's counting guys today, too. And Louis uh, played nine years in the ABA, and then also went into service. And that was the one hang-up with a lot of the players when we merged. A lot of them played in the ABA for long periods of time, but also were in the service at that time for two-year period. So they lost a lot of years before we merged and came into the NBA. And that was a crime because a lot of them came in. Now, Artis and Dan had great careers, but they were younger 
and when Louis came in, he was an older guy. So uh, we had talent. Now, the toughest thing in NBA is decide who your closer is. And a lot of people think everybody wants the ball, and that's not true. They don't want it at the high school level, college level, NBA level. They don't want to be the guy who who closes the game out and, and either, one, can he make the shot, B, can he make the two foul shots if he gets fi- if he gets fouled? Three, if he's trapped, can he make the pass out of the trap? And then four, if he has nothing, can he create for himself to get a good shot? Now that, to me, is a closer. Now, Louis Dampier for us, the very first night, uh, I'm coaching at home, Louisville and Denver. The Kentucky Colonels in Denver. Larry Brown is coaching Denver with Doug Moe. They have a great team. The game comes down to the last shot. And uh, uh, we call timeout. And the guys run to the huddle. And this guy runs up and he puts his hands right up by my throat. And he goes, I take the last shot here. And I'm looking at him. And it's Louis Dampier. He's making $60,000. The other two guys are making over 250000 at that time. i got to remember, it's 1974. Louis Dampier, that year, during 84 games, because we played 84 games, and the three rounds of playoffs, won nine games for us on the last shot. He was our third best player. Got the message? Yeah, and I've heard you talk about closers before. And I think a lot of fans just assume, well, if a guy is a superstar player, if he averages 25 a night, well, then obviously he's the guy that you, you, you want to have the ball in that situation. But but not true, right? It, sometimes it's something within a guy that maybe the average fan might not predict that that would be the guy that the coach would want to have the ball, and yet it is. Absolutely. You would be stunned at how many guys – refused to take the last shot that were great players. And when uh, Dick Stockton and I did that CBS game where they picked the top 50 players and a game was played in Cleveland in the history of pro basketball, that was the conversation in the hotel by a lot of the guys who were there because they were upset that some guys were in there because they never took the last shot. They would always overpass to a guy who was unexpectedly uh, getting the ball, and then he would take the shot. Now, without getting into any names of that, that happens at the high school level and the college level because the player himself cannot take the uh, negative side of missing the last shot or getting fouled and going to the foul line and having to make, say, two shots. They They just can't handle that. It's not within their personality. So you say, well... That's a Nick. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a coach's decision. That's where the coaching staff has got to understand who is our top closer and can we get this guy open against this defense that they've been playing against them? See, that's the test of coaching staff. And every time that we're in a close game on television, I'll bring that up. It's the close, the, the coaching staff's job to get the top three scores of their team that's out on the floor, high percentage shots in their best areas. And by that, you only know that through competition of what you're running 
and also in your shooting drills. Do you uh, chart your shooting drills? Well, we have six different shooting drills that start from the outside uh, the perimeter and then also works down in and that everybody has to do moves with their back to the baskets, etc., so that you see in your shooting drills when you're charting everything that you can see where guys are best on which side of the floor and in uh, are they on the left and the right or are they in the middle where you have to get them their shots. Now, players with IQ are great finishers. They'll finish for you, but they're hoping that you can get them into an area where they're at their best tonight and make sure that they get the good touch and that they have time to make their, to make their moves, etc. Well, that's the coaching job. And that's why you always look at teams and you say, in the last five minutes, if they were ahead, how many games did they win or lose? Well, this is pro basketball. Stop blaming the player for missing the shots or getting the shot. Because so many teams with bad records in the last five minutes with a lead do not get their best players high percentage shots, and especially the last shot. That's where a coach with a high IQ at this level can make, make, his, make his mark because he is showing the player that he understands the pluses and minuses of his game, and he's showing the fan and the media that he is running good stuff because when the ball is out of bounds underneath the basket or on the side, your play, and you tell us to all coaches, if you're running a play in less than five seconds, will it work against a man or a zone? Because when that ball comes in bounds, they might shift from a man-to-man matchup into a zone. Or they might shift from a zone into a man-to-man. They might trap you, which they've never done before. Never assume on that last timeout. Well, that has to be fitted in with the fact that you as a coaching staff have got to have stuff that will work against the man or the zone or to help him if there's a quick trap by your movement. And then uh, that player and the player out of bounds, they all understand what's going to happen. And it relieves the tension of the moment. Now, if you get a kid, I'm sorry, I call them all kids. <laughs> but if you get a player at the pro level, you got him a good shot, and he missed it. He's the first guy that you get to going off the court or in your locker room. Because you know at this level, this game is being seen by 215 countries across the world now on a nightly basis if you're on one of those eight games on DirecTV. You're getting this game by all the different countries around the world. So this now isn't now players getting uh, accolades here in the United States. We're into all of these countries. And I'll give you a good stat. Last year in game one of the finals, forget about the rating here in the United States on television. In China alone, just China, 30 million people Watch game one. Just wow. think about that. Wow. You see, we just think of these games are in. No, these games now, this is all because of what David Stern did 
way back in the late 80s and early 90s when we did clinics all over the world. And he sold the rights to merchandising and television. And by doing that, everybody thought he was crazy because back here in the United States, the games were on delayed tape on CBS during the week at 11.30 at night in the finals. And then the live games were on either Saturday or Sunday. People forget this. David Stern is the master of the development of this league worldwide. You should get all the credit. And because of that, salaries for every single position have multiplied and gone up. And it's just uh, he had an incredible vision that only very few people uh, understood, even while we were doing it. Okay, But it's, uh, it's great. All right, I want to talk to you about some of the issues in the game today. But before I do that, I want to kind of go back to the triumph and the tragedy of the Kentucky Colonels because you took that team, uh, as you said, great team, to an ABA championship in, in 1975. They finally broke through, as I said, one of the winningest franchises in the, uh, the history of the of the league. They may have had the most regular season wins of any franchise. It was either them or the Pacers. Uh, but finally get that championship in 75. And the tragedy of it is, I guess, twofold. One, uh, the, the team is, is broken up after that 75 season, so you really only had that group for the one year. And then within a year after that, the, the, the ABA is, is no more, and the leagues merge, and the Colonels are, are not a part of, of, of that merger. Could you kind of just take me through that process from winning the title, which obviously is the highlight in the history of the franchise, to losing Issel, ultimately Louisville, yeah, okay. losing, losing the team entirely? Uh, the greatest tribute paid to us was about three years ago, Dr. J was interviewed, and uh, New York won the championship in 74, we won in 75, New York won in 76. And then Dr. J was sold to, by the Nets, sold to Philadelphia. That's how he ended up in Philadelphia. They asked Dr. J three years ago, could the old ABA teams play with the NBA? He said, well, we proved that in the exhibition, but if you don't want to take the exhibition, he said, my New York teams, and he said, most of all, the 75 Kentucky Colonels could have played any time, any place, with any team that ever played in the NBA. Now that, to me, is unsolicited, an evaluation by a great player whose team was outstanding. Now, when we joined Kentucky in 75, we only had, uh, we had six guys and then four new players. Well, at the end of the year, uh, we tied New York, and we had a playoff. We won the playoff game. So we were seeded first. So now we go into the playoffs, and we play Memphis. Uh, we go 3-1. New York gets upset by St. Louis that had Marvin Barnes and, and uh, uh, Caldwell Jones, and you, you name the uh, incredible team they had there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they beat New York in a five-game series. Well, we play St. Louis the second round. We beat them three games to one. Now Indiana upset, in my opinion, the best team in the league, one through ten, the San Antonio Spurs with George Gervin and uh, that team. They upset them in a seven-game series. Then they upset Denver 
in another seven-game series in the second round. That team was coached by Larry Brown and Doug Moe. Then in the final, I we play Indiana, and they had George McGinnis. Now, you can go back and check this. George McGinnis in those first two games, uh, two series averaged over 30 points, over 15 rebounds, and over 10 assists. That's how good George McGinnis was. And George, uh, we defeated them in a four-game series, three to one. So that's why on our rings, we had 22 and three in our last 25 games. We went 10-0, and then we went uh, uh, 12 and three in the playoffs. Uh, I'm sorry, four one four one four one. Right. So consequently, we have that on our ring to show, you know, what a great year it was. But after about a week of the season, everybody was, you know, thrilled. We had this great team. Well, management sells Dan Issel for $500,000 to a team coming into the league called the Baltimore Claws. Well, they don't open. Three preseason games. <laughs> that, that was it. Well, I, like gone. I say, they fold. So they trade Dan Issel to... Denver for the 500000 Now, according to a business guy uh, uh, a month ago, he said to me, in money, that would be $23 million and in today's money. Now, the 500000 today. So I said, that's about right, because Carmelo Anthony just got traded making $23,000, Dan Issel was a 20-point scorer and a 10-plus rebounder and was a power forward low-post guy. So that all made sense. But we lost our second highest score behind Artis Gilmore. Now, then they trade our point guard, who Teddy McLean, out of Tennessee State, who was uh, 6'3", one of the best point guards I've ever had, because he, he, he was first-team all-defense and was just outstanding. The night we won the championship, he had six deals in that game, so alone. And... They traded him to New York for $150,000. So we lost two of our starters, and that was a problem. So uh, in the second year, 76, we lost in seven games to Denver, and uh, uh, we lost in the semifinals. Now, that was sad because that team was supposedly coming into the league. Uh, Denver and San Antonio definitely because of the geography and their teams. New York was definitely coming in. And then also Kentucky. Well, what happened is they offered the management of uh, the uh, uh, Squires and uh, uh, Virginia Squires in Memphis and St. Louis, and then they offered them a package of money which was less than $4 million if they didn't come in the league. Well, I'll be damned. Louisville took the money and did not come into the league. Kentucky Colonels did not come in. That's how the Indiana Pacers came in. Now, for the league, that was great because the Indiana Pacers just had a brand-new building. That was the second year of the brand-new building. They had a well-run organization, and they had a great team. So, uh, unfortunately, the Kentucky Colonels now are out of business. So our players went into the draft, okay, went into the draft, and if you go back and look, there were uh, seven, uh, seven uh, teams left at that time, and 70-some-odd players 
uh, were drafted and went into the NBA league. Now, that's incredible, right? So uh, if you go back and look at the first All-Star game, which was played in Atlanta, there were uh, uh, two All-Star teams. I was coaching Atlanta. They had a banquet there for 5,000 people, and uh, Julius Irving received the most votes for that All-Star game. And in that game, you should sit down and count the players from the West and the East of how many guys were ABA guys, how many guys played in the NBA before going to the, uh, played in the ABA before going to the NBA. You'll be shocked. And so were all of the people. And that's why we were so happy that Doc uh, won that award because he handled it so beautifully that night in front of 5,000 people representing not only himself as a great player and then also across the country his notoriety, but also his class in how he brought along the entire ABA in his speech to 5,000 people. It was outstanding. QB, you know, my younger followers are really only going to know you from your broadcasting career mostly primarily and the really young followers are are probably only going to know you from your broadcasting career you've you've worked for usa network cbs turner of course abc espn when did you realize that broadcasting was something that you had a passion for that was on the same level as your passion for coaching look when i was a high school coach uh, assistant football, defense, and head basketball, head baseball. I never was looking to go to the college level. Uh, I was always happy. When I went to the college level, I was one year at William & Mary. All of a sudden, I met Duke for four years. I never was looking to go to the next level. I was always, uh, I want to do the best job 100% of where I'm at be happy. Uh, when the NBA thing opened up, uh, it was a boom to my career. It opened up a lot of things. Now, when we took over Atlanta in the ABA, uh, they hadn't been in the playoffs in four years. Uh, we took them that first year uh, with the team that they had, and then Ted Turner bought the team in February. Uh, at the end of the year, Ted Turner said, look, I want to get rid of this budget. Think of the budget now, you ready? $1.4 million was the budget for the entire 12 players. He was cutting it back to 800000 okay? So that's when we came in with uh, 12 guys making $800,000, and I said to him when he did it, without getting into the whole meeting, uh, he said, well, we'll come in last, we'll get the first pick in the draft, and the second year we'll come in last, and we'll get the second pick in the draft, and then the third year we'll probably come in second or third from the bottom, but we'll get another good player. And I said to Ted, he said, what do you think? And I said, how about if we try winning? <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, he says, how the hell are we going to win with an $800,000 budget? Now, you got to admit, now, it's pretty good. Okay? So that's when we went out and we had all those young kids. We had the lowest payroll and the youngest team in the league. And we pressed and trapped full court on makes, either man-to-man or 1-2-1-1 one, one, one zone press. On all foul shots, we were 2-2-1 two, two, zone press. And then if the ball went out of bounds in half court, we trapped you 1-3-1. One, one. 
on Mrs. Whitcomb play you man-to-man and then trap you off the dribble. And we rotated 10 guys. Wrote 10 guys played every single quarter. And uh, every time the ball would go out of bounds, the Oregon guy would play Rocky because Rocky was the <laughs> big movie of the year because we were the underdog every night. Well, if you go back and check, we won 41 games, we made the playoffs, and we went 0-2 in the three-game series with Washington. They won the championship. The very next year, we went seven games with Washington, and uh, uh, it came down for the last 20 seconds of the game, and they beat us, and they went to the finals again. But I, I was let go at Atlanta, and I was going to be out for a year. And... And USA Television came. Eddie Doucette, who I was with in Milwaukee, who did the games for Milwaukee, was doing the Thursday night doubleheader in the NBA for USA. Now, people out there don't even realize, UC, USA did Major League Baseball doubleheaders on Thursdays and NBA doubleheaders on Thursday and also did major college football. People don't realize that. They forget it because of this monster ESPN that came in and took over all of that. Well, Eddie Doucette uh, asked the head guy up there, they call me. I never thought of ever being on television, okay? I, I went up there for an interview. They gave me the job, and I worked with Al Albert on the Eastern game, the 7 o'clock game, and Eddie Doucette and Steve Jones did the second game in the West. That, I did that for a year. Then I became the head coach of the Knicks. And we had great teams in the first couple of years, and then we had all the injuries. So CBS would use me uh, if we weren't in the playoffs as a part-time guy just doing the playoffs. And then when I got finished in 87, they came to me, and after a year of doing television, I did all of the 76er games. I did 15 Detroit games of the Detroit Bad Boys, Dick Mata and I split their television. And then I did college games for CBS on Saturday, working with James Brown, who you see up there on NFL CBS football. Sure. I'm moderating that group. Well, James Brown was a great high school player at the Matha, All-American player at uh, Harvard, and then was the last guy cut from the Atlanta Hawks. People don't even realize that. James Brown was a great basketball player. Uh, So we did that. Now, out of that came of me replacing Billy Cunningham at CBS because Billy Cunningham, a team called the Miami Heat, became an expansion team. Billy Cunningham went down there as a part owner and then also making all the basketball decisions with a, a, a uh, general manager called Louis Chaffel. And when Billy Cunningham left CBS to do that, I replaced CBS uh, I replaced Billy Cunningham and CBS for two years. And at the end of two years, the contract of 17 years of CBS doing the NBA was lost to NBC because CBS thought Stern was bluffing in the negotiations. And he told them in that morning that in the afternoon, if they didn't commit, that NBC would take the package. They thought he was bluffing. That's how CBS lost it to NBC, who then did it for 17 or 18 years before they lost it to ABC. Now, I was fortunate when CBS to lose this 
I was fortunate to get picked up by Turner. And uh, Doug Collins and I were the two guys who did the doubleheaders on Thursday night for Turner. Doug and I uh, each did a game. I did that for 12 years. And then, uh, believe it or not, uh, Jerry West called me when my, you know, Memphis was down 08. They had never won 20. They don't, most they won in seven years in Vancouver and in Memphis was 23 games. So I, I, uh, Jerry West called me when they were 0 and 8, asked me to take over the team, which we did. And, uh, at the end of the year, we won 28 games, which was a big thing. And then the next year, we won 50. With, with those same kids, but we had great kids. We had Jerry West took over the team. We had great kids. And when you think of these kids now that we're, we're not winning, just think of the names. Pau Gasol, two rings with Los Angeles after a great career. Shane Battier, James Posey, small forwards, young guys, two rings each. Uh, one with uh, Miami for two, and then Posey, one with Miami, one with Boston. Jason Williams, this uncontrollable kid. I, one ring or two rings with Miami. And then Mike Miller, two rings with, with Miami. These were kids that needed A, direction, B, accountability, uh, C, a style of play to bring out their talents because we played 10 guys a quarter and they all got a chance to perform. And just think about it, after we won that 50 games, and then uh, Jerry West and myself were rewarded by the league. But these players, then, the next couple of years for Fratello, they, Mike Fratello, they did a great job. And then as they started to splinter off, just think about it. Battier, Posey, uh, Williams, and Miller, all with rings in Miami. And then Pau Casal in the big trade after he broke his ankle and they didn't want to pay him $14 million anymore. They traded him to the Lakers, and little do they know, they get his brother back as a distant draft pick, who now is a star in the league at the center position, and then Powell's career, what he did in L.A. with Kobe Bryant and Bynum. Just think about that a second. All those kids were down there, and they had never won more than 23 games. Now, see, that to me, you taking that job... And, you know, you've been out of the coaching side of things for, what, 15 years at that point. You're, yes. you're almost 70. Was that a tough sell for you to come back? Because I think, for me, the greatest accomplishment uh, in your coaching career is the fact that you won Coach of the Year awards over a quarter century apart. So much had changed in the game. You win the first one pre-three-point shot era. And then you come back 26 years later, you're coach of the year again uh, with an entirely different generation, which I think as much as anything speaks to what a heck of a coach you are. Well, here's what people ask. They always ask you, what changed for you as a head coach going back to Memphis at that age? And I reach down and I take out my checkbook and I look at it and I say, I'm making 10 times more than I made <laughs> As one of the top three guys in the league in 87, it was $350,000. We weren't making big money back then. That's why we were doing clinics and motivational talks and all of this, because we had three or four kids in college at the same time. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So to come back at that time and to be making these sinful amounts of money, but 
that's how far the NBA moved once you got out of the 80s into the 90s and David got it going. Okay, David Stern. Uh, everybody's salaries were rewarded. Now, if you're a family, back in the old days, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, or in today's, today's uh, society, you have four kids, and you have a star kid, whether it's a, uh, uh, an athlete or uh, in dramatics or a musician or whatever the talent may be, and you have jobs in your house that they all have to do because you're working and your mother is working. And the star doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And the other kids have all got to pitch in and you favor that child. You immediately disrupt the chemistry around your table every single night at dinner because the other three who are being underappreciated for doing what you are asking are totally upset. I do this at every clinic and every team that I coach. This We hammer this all the time. No person is going to be bigger than what we're doing here because I was brought in with Kareem and Oscar and there's nobody... I don't care who you want that's bigger than Kareem and Oscar on one thing. And I saw what winning was about and what sacrifice was about and what chemistry and more important, accountability. Because Oscar was in your face like you couldn't believe it on the floor to any player that was screwing up. So I came in the right way. And then coaching-wise, I... I felt that that's how you have to be at this level. Everything is accountability. Everything is for you giving me your heart on a daily basis in our practices that are meticulous uh, and, and run hard. And as we, uh, during the year, we don't stay at two hours. We come out of camp, we go an hour and a half. We get to March 1st, we're only an hour. But everything is boobity boobity boo. Everything is moving quickly so that we... And then we always play 10 players. So we're saving your stamina as we're going through. But more important, we're creating two more guys to get them talented and then possibly move up in the rotations or use as people who can be traded because people have seen their potential. They've seen them on the floor. So by you being accountable and you being a good team member, and in chemistry, we have to reward you as coaches, understanding that we get it. The players win the games, the coaches lose the games, but it's our job to make sure every night that we have an opportunity to win, that you feel that in your heart. You do your job, our scouts are the best, and I said our game plans will be per you know, really excellent, and now it comes down to the coaching staff and the players forcing themselves to run this out and then hopefully we can compete night in and night out. And, that, you know, that's... <laughs> Hubie, I got to ask you because, you know, you said that you didn't really have any aspirations of uh, c coaching, you know, long-term at the college level. And you've talked about how in the NBA, coaches lose games, players win games, but at the college level, it's, it's pretty much flipped. And, and obviously, college coaches, uh, you could set up shop at a big-time school and, uh, you know, you could, be, uh, you could have your own fiefdom uh, there, basically. And, and you certainly had the ability as a coach to, 
to do that, uh, was there ever any point that you entertained the, the, the idea, even fleetingly, uh, of taking a head coaching job at a, at a major university? No, never, never. Because I always wanted to give 100% at the job level. And when uh, things ended in 87, television stepped in because I wanted to learn the, the whole business. By doing those games and the playoffs for the Sixers and then doing the Detroit 15 games and then doing college, I did over 120 games that year. And a lot of times I'd wake up in a hotel, I had no idea where I was. Okay? <laughs> but I learned because I worked with so many different people. You learn a style. You learn how to adjust to the guys that you are working with. The announcer, the producer, the director. You learn the business. You learn to get in and out quickly. You learn all of these things when you're doing all of that. Well then for me, fortunately, I get the CBS thing and that started it and then took to uh, Turner. So I was always happy doing television. The only reason why I came back is because things changed at Turner, okay? And then Popovich came through and uh, asked me to do television games for them. I did three TV games, and the next thing I knew, I was the head coach of Memphis. So to me, I always tell people, stop worrying about the next job. Just try to do the best job you can at the job you're at and give it your heart and soul and your passion and then when job opportunities come about, you have to realize that your family is the ones that are going to decide whether you take this job. Because the one thing you do not want to get a divorce over is by moving from job to job. Because your family and your children do not like changing schools. Uh, your family doesn't like resetting up. Your wife doesn't like the nine different cities that you've lived in, okay, as she has to move and pick up. Because the coach is always going, whether it's high school or college or NBA, he's in the limelight, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's traveling, while the wife is trying to salvage the discipline and the organization of the children and getting the totalness out of them in every direction when you're home. And then when you win a television award, this will be my 30th year of doing full-time television. A lot of the players that I interviewed never even knew that I coached, you know that. Because when I came back from Milwaukee, I, when I came back to Memphis, all the guys just thought that I was a television person. Right. You know, that I'd never coached before. So that comes with the territory. But in 2000, I was awarded the Kirk Gowdy uh, Basketball Hall of Fame Award for television. Now, this was such a thrill. Who would ever have thought, okay? And I was thinking of what I'm going to say here now, and you only get so many minutes. So I, I said, look, and I tell every guy that wants calls me about getting into television, you're only as good as the announcer that you're working with and the producer and director. And I said, I'm only as good as Dick Stockton, who's announcing the game and gives me the time to talk. And hopefully I'll break the game down and show you the reasons why things are happening. Now, when you get to the level that we are at right now uh, with ABC and ESPN, you have the best producers, best directors, best camera guys, so the pictures will match what you're talking about. Right. 
bad television is when the pictures do not match what you have on the screen. Plus, it's a four-man group, just like basketball. It's chemistry. It's accountability. We're all in it together. One guy isn't going to do it by himself. Announcer, analyst, producer, director. We are a team. We're a tight team of people, and every night we have 70 to 90 people working this game in some section of camera work, whatever is happening in the trucks back in Bristol. All of this is going on, but you're out in front. So you have to understand that one sentence can take you off the air, but you also want to say that you do not want to show the people exactly what they just saw. You want to explain why it happened, and always look to the opposite side of the floor where the ball is so that they can see what is really going on. Now, that's tough, because even assistant coaches have a tendency to only watch the ball, and you're watching two people, four people, maybe six people, but there are ten people on the floor where the action will eventually come to, in most cases, in NBA good offenses, because misdirection is the same thing in the NFL. Misdirection of what is going to be where the play is really going. So all of that comes out in television, and it and it comes from everybody working on the same page, and then according to the abilities that they have. But you as the person, you have to recognize that, that it's not I. It's always we. It's we in coaching. It's we in television. We're all in this damn thing together. And the best thing is, is to give the best product that we can now for ESPN and ABC. Hubie, I have to ask you, you know, a lot, a lot of people may not know, you just turned 84 a couple of days ago and a belated happy birthday to you. Thank you. Where does the passion come from? Because, I mean, the passion still burns as brightly in you as, as, as it ever did. I think. I mean, it comes through in your answers. It comes through in your broadcasting. Uh, what's the secret to, to, to maintaining that drive for all these many years? I'm going to get sentimental now. I don't do this very often. In 1947, the Second World War ended. We were living in a little apartment in Elizabeth, New Jersey. My dad had worked 19 years at the Carney shipyards, and they built destroyers and battleships that would go to the different ports on the East Coast and send the guys in the services over to Europe in the fighting at that time. My dad was the foreman. The Carney shipyards closed when the Second World War ended. My father came and got a job at Singers in Elizabeth, town of 150,000, uh, as a machinist. After three months, the Carney shipyards reopened up and my father and the foreman all went back to the Carney shipyards. Naturally, they were hoping for a pension, you know, to get over that 20-year mark. Well, what happens is they only stay open for, I can't remember how many months, because I was a eighth grader at the time, and the government closes down the Carney shipyards. Now, there are no jobs. Mm. And uh, my father is uh, still the greatest man that I've ever met. And um, he walked the streets for eight months and couldn't get a job. And he would say to me, 
Chiefs, always remember, no matter how good life treats you, you're half a step from the street. And then he took the job as the janitor of my high school, Catholic school, St. Mary's of Elizabeth, four years that I played there. And then he went to work and got a job at Berry Biscuits and worked for Berry Biscuits uh, for 19 years before he retired. I have never forgotten that. You're always a half a step in the street. So I do a speech to coaches, especially if it's a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour speech of understanding your job, how you are going to, you know, different sections. It goes different sections. Because back then when that happened uh, to me in Atlanta, after what we did in Atlanta, um, I was devastated because I'd never been fired before in any job. And uh, I had to understand of getting myself out of depression. I, I didn't want to get depressed. I didn't want to become alcoholic. I didn't want to do drugs. I love my family. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't have a breakdown. So I, in return for a year, I did all of these different things that we, we don't have to get into here now. And uh, to get myself out of the funk, and that's when I went to work for USA, and then at the end of the year, I was coaching the Knicks. But it was a, uh, because there were no books back then at the time of how you deal with that kind of thing. Because you can lose a job, not, not just by uh, uh, winning or losing, you can lose a job because uh, losing one, you can lose a job because the town or the college or the NBA people don't like your style of play. You can lose a job by punching a kid in, in high school or college or whatever, and then in the pros you could lose it for a number of reasons because there are a lot of, uh, how should I say, uh, stand-ups with players, okay? Uh, right. Being mildly, okay, to get them on the same page. So there, there's a lot of ways, and then you don't give, as a coach, you don't go out and give ultimatums to the AD or the principal or to the AD in college, or to the head of the uh, college, or you don't do this to your general manager unless you have someplace else to go. You can give all the ultimatums you want, you got someplace to go, because then when they fire you, because they've been waiting on load you anyway, right? you have someplace to go. So don't be giving ultimatums to people. And you can see that there have been so many great coaches at the high school, college, and pro level who have done this and lost their job. And people don't understand why. Because you have to understand that you are, once you're out of place, you got to do the best job 100%. you got to be accountable on a daily basis. But then you want to uh, develop talent. You want to do everything possible. But if they get change of management, you might be out the door. Going right back to 1947, one the greatest man in my life, Say, Chief, always remember, you're half a step in the street. I never forget that any day that I'm working on television. The lessons of a father. That's that's correct. Yeah, no, that's beautiful, and it's terrific advice. And obviously, you followed it all of these years. One one question I wanted to ask you is is about the three point shot. As we discussed earlier, an ABA innovation. 
the NBA eventually adopted it in 79, as, as you alluded to. And, you know, increasingly, we've seen the trajectory over the past nearly 40 years now become, you know, more and more a part of the game. I, I, I think about Larry Bird uh, back in the 1980s, obviously one of the great shooters that that uh, any of us uh, saw at that time that are old enough to remember uh, Larry. Uh, the, the most three-pointers that Larry ever made in a season was uh, 98 uh, in the 87-88 season. Uh, the most he ever took uh, was about three a game. Now you've got guys that are, you know, three, three, you know Larry's taking three a game. you got guys that are taking, you know, five a quarter <laughs> some nights. You know, the, the Warriors have turned it into an art form and a lot of other teams as well as teams are looking to increase their offensive efficiency and, they, and they've started to utilize the three-pointer more and more and get more uh, effective at doing so. Do you think it's gone too far? Is it too much a part of the game now? Well, this is a two-hour topic. <laughs> uh, first of all, when it first came in, it was a part of what you were doing. The greatest movement in offenses that we saw in the league since I've been around since 73 were the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Because the coaching at that time took in the three-point shot, incorporated in their offensive sets. Like I told you before, we had seven sets, and we had at least four plays, the five plays out of each set. A set being different ways that you line up in your half-court offense. Four out-of-bounds plays, four out-of-bounds plays on the side, four underneath that work against man-to-man or zone so that you can't, uh, uh, how should I say, you can't uh, upset us by how you're going to defend it. Next thing is, so at that level, we were playing chess at the NBA level. Players coming in with a low basketball IQ could never adapt to all of the different sets and the continuity and the speed. They would be short-term. But because now, back then, we had 14 teams, I think it went to 8, 17, 19, 21, 23. Now to 30, we have 450 people in the league. So what has happened now is we're no longer playing chess, but we're playing checkers. But we're playing chess back in those times by great offenses, getting the best players, your three best players on each unit, high percentage shots in their areas. This is your job. But now you can turn on DirecTV and get eight games tonight, and you will see... So many teams come down the floor, rush quickly, shoot a three, come down the floor, go pick and roll, or pick and pop, and if you don't have it, one-on-one. And that's it. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, but look at the threes because we get the extra points. Okay, that's true. But now let me ask you, are you taking all of these threes and you're making your shots, where is your inside game? Because when you have an inside game, whether it's off the dribble into the paint or whether it is posting up high-low or a single post, how many offensive rebounds are you getting a game? Ours was to get 15. You say 15 offensive rebounds? That's correct. Because you get an offensive rebound, and that second shot out of the offensive rebound will be within six to eight feet. And you're going to either get a high percentage shot 
or you're going to get fouled, and you'll get a three-point potential from there. That's all good. But you know what the bonus is? The front line of the other team gets fouled. Right. And they don't stay in the game their normal minutes. That's a part of the cerebral part of the game that is gone. Then, when we get into the playoffs, the good defensive teams come into action. You're going to run into them in the conference finals and finals, and they take away your fast transition. Why? Because they shoot a good percentage at the other end, and you take the ball out of the basket. Or they get to the foul line. You take the ball out of the basket. Now they set up, okay, as you're pushing. They now, instead of trapping the pick and roll, they go under, or they send it baseline, and they rotate triangle zone behind you. What do you got? What do you got for that? See, that's when we start to see all these teams going home, okay? Mm-hmm. And they go home every year because they have no substance. They have surface basketball, and it's the quick game shooting threes. I take away your threes by trapping you or picking you up now, not at the three-point line, but between the three-point line and half court. I make your passes longer, and also the clock is going down. So now what I do is is I get you to shoot in your last segments. Now people go, oh, well, you'll be Golden State takes a lot of threes. But how do they get open? They get open because they're running the best five-man offense in the league. They have four guys who can make threes over 40%. You don't have that. They have four who start for them. Then they bring Iguodala and, and, and Livingston and that group off the bench. But the key there, when you watch them play, is they don't have a post-up game. They have a pick-and-roll game, but while three guys are playing on one side, They're doing back screens, down screens, staggered screens on the other side of the floor. And when you watch them play, most of the action during the night is on ball reversal where they're killing you, just like they did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. They have the best run offensive plays for their team. And then they're fortunate that they have four guys that could make the threes. Now just go back to when they lost that championship to Cleveland. People forget this because we did the games. Fourth quarter in game five, fourth quarter in game seven, the greatest three-point shooting team in the league went one for ten. Cleveland picked them up at half court, got them out of their short passing game, forced the clock to go down, trapped them hard on pick and rolls, zoned up the rolling guys, and they ended up taking bad threes, and they went one for ten and one for ten. They say, how come we didn't read that? I, I don't know. We were talking about it on, on radio. Because, you see, they took away their number one thing. So now the defense that they had out there for Cleveland, they had Shumpert and J.R. Smith at the guards, at both guys at 6'6", and they had Jefferson at the power forward at 6'7". I mean, at the small forward, they had LeBron at power forward and Thompson. So they could interchange and do anything, and you didn't get an advantage by running a pick and roll or by a a dribble exchange. They took all that away. So that's my point. My point is the three-point game, I'll I'll buy into anybody that said it's ruined the game, the IQ 
of the game because I want to ask these guys, how do you get your best shot and how do you set up against the best teams that have equal talent or better talent than you when the game is in the last six minutes? What do you run that's good in these games? And you will see that as we go through the playoffs, these minimized teams that only are running a few things today, all built on this uh, uh, numbers stuff, right? Uh, they go home. And everybody doesn't understand why they don't achieve what they achieve. And it's interesting how they'll all change four to six guys over the summers. You're not supposed to see that, though. Um, and I, I'm old school, but I'm also understanding the job of the coaching staff to when you have the talent to win at the level you're supposed to win at, and then also that your players believe that when this game starts, that what you're running will be good for your three best scorers, and then also the three best scorers on your second unit when you make your stuff, because now you're giving them a legitimate chance to win. Now, I know I'm pontificating in 10 to 15 minutes here, but I don't have two hours to do this on a board with you. <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a good short summary of a, a much longer conversation, I'm sure. I want, I'll leave you with this. I've got to ask you about referees. You, of course, were known as one of the more fiery guys on the sideline. You've certainly had more than your fair share of uh, experiences and perhaps even run-ins with referees through the years. Are there any guys for you that stand out as uh, being uh, the, the best in the game through the years? And what are the changes that you've seen in referees over the course of your many years in basketball? See, I don't want to pick out guys. See, back in the ABA days, you're only two guys refereeing the game. Then when we merged, those guys were naturally brought back, okay, to the NBA because they were excellent referees. They were still doing two-man crews. Now, back then, it was easy to evaluate guys because they were, they could control the game, two guys. Now, remember, they can't control a third of the floor. They can only control the guy who the ball and then pivot play. They can't get all of the offside play. So that's where all of the grabbing and holding and forearm stuff was happening from the other side of the floor. So when they went for three referees, that should clean up the opposite side of the floor. Well, every night that a good referee, a head referee is out there, who is he working with? Is he working with one young guy or two young guys? Now, back in the day, it was two-man teams. They would be working by themselves in the last six minutes of every big NBA game or ABA game because that guy was frightened to death. The other guy was frightened to make the call at that time. So the head guys uh, were by themselves. It was, a, it was a very difficult job on them because they have no home court. You, have, you get great respect for them. Now, do you get up and challenge? Sure. You always challenge rules, and you're always challenging. Now, sometimes you're challenging too much because you're on the road with a young team, and finally the guy will come by you, the head guy, back in the old days, he'd come by you and finally say, Yubi, that's enough. So then you knew that the next time you're going to get hit with a tape, okay? Mm -hmm. See, they, they were all really good that way. Well, now, today, you have three guys doing a game. They're being um, evaluated by a guy in the stands, probably an ex-college referee, who tapes every single play. He, he's doing this. He's taping every play. Then they're evaluated 
back in New York by whoever is responsible for that section of the country, all their games. Then they have to uh, go back to the hotel and they're evaluated by what they screwed up with on a phone call or the next day, the next morning, they have uh, by the computer the top 10 plays of the game that were either called correctly or incorrectly. They are so um, evaluated, it's frightening, okay, how they're evaluated, how much. So I, I always respect how tough a job they have, but during the course of the battle, you're trying to get calls or you're trying to get the non-call a call. Because if defensive players have reputations, they get away with anything that a young guy will definitely get a foul for. Right? Because it's within the league, it's been passed down forever. I used to say this to people. The first time around when I coached up until 87, uh, you take the ball out of basket, you score at that end. Uh, we bring the ball up the floor. During the regular season, there are five fouls before the ball is shot. The referee back then had to decide what's a foul tonight and what's not a foul. Some referees are really tough on pivot play. Some are really tough on the dribbler, okay, the defending the dribbler. Some guys are brutal on the shot. Even though the guy gets it, he might just brush a guy. One guy will call it okay. The other guy will call it a two-shot foul. Because all teams of referees referee the game differently, all right? So when you go as a coach, you've got to understand this. Do you know how the game's going to be called tonight? And if it's not called your way, do you challenge? Because if you challenge, you might swing the game. Or if you don't challenge, it's going to be pushed right down your throat. So you, you can't expect coaches to react the same way every single night because the three guys that come into your game or the two guys in the old days, their personality of the lead guy will dictate how the game is going to be refereed. Now it's up to you as a coach to get your team to adjust after the first five, six minutes of the game. You have to adjust. You have to maybe change the type of trapping. Or you have to decide this first quarter and third quarter. And if you don't do that, you're cheating your team. Because these guys are still going to referee that way. And it might not have been refereed that way last night, where you just played someplace else on the road. So you have to understand all of that. So I, I don't grade referees. I, I, uh, I used to have my assistants grade the referees that we sent in all the time. I would check it out so I know who the hell we voted for. But the first time... I was a head coach, and I went into the meeting of the coaches. And we had to evaluate the referees. And they did it on a blackboard. And what I found out was the ex-players who were head coaches in the ABA graded officials differently than the guys who didn't play in the NBA who came in as college coaches. Really? And back then, as you know, there were tons of guys coaching yeah. that. Uh, they, they voted just the opposite of these guys. So right away, I saw after one year the difference here. Because you can't tell me that the referees at that time, maybe the ex-player felt that he was getting a better break. You understand? Mm -hmm. And 
uh, versus the college guy. And the college guy was coming from evaluations, how they do it. So, so there, there's all kinds of different personalities that enter into here, whether a referee is really a great referee or not. What you want the referees tonight to be is consistent. I don't care how you call a game, but be consistent all four quarters. A hard foul is a hard foul, or it's not a hard foul. And uh, on the dribblers, how much are you going to let us hand check or use our forearms? Okay? Uh, What are you doing off the ball? Just be consistent so the kids on the floor understand which way the game is going to go. If you do that, the game will be fine. It'll be well officiated. There'll be less pitching, and you'll be you know you'll be out of the technicals unless there was a you know a flare up between a couple of guys. But uh, you know, in a in a quick summary, that's what I'm trying to get across. Yeah, no, I mean that's like what uh, you know people always used to say about home plate umpires is you know different guys had different strike zones back in the day, but the sure. important thing is that you're consistent with it. Hubie, such a great career. You're one of the great teachers uh, ever in the game. I think my basketball IQ went up at least three or four points uh, just from having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Well, Ricky, thanks for the opportunity. Nice talking to you. I know we went a little bit over the budget, but uh, uh, good luck with the, uh, the radio show and good luck with being a professor at the college and Hope things go well for you. Maybe someday our paths will cross. What a pleasure to have Hubie Brown on this podcast, 84 years young. The man loves his basketball even after all these years. His passion's contagious, and nobody breaks it down like Hubie. And I hope that you enjoyed our conversation, and perhaps maybe you even learned a little something about the game. I know that I did. I feel a little bit more basketball smart now after talking to Hubie Brown. So my thanks again to Hubie, and I look forward to watching him this season calling the NBA games as he has done for us for so many years now. My guest next week was a member of the Cinderella 1983 North Carolina State NCAA Championship team, one of Jim Valvano's guys. Uh, He was the leading three-point shooter in America in 1983. The Atlantic Coast Conference was experimenting with the new rule at the time, and he was burying threes at over a 50% rate that year. He's gone on to have a very distinguished career in television, covering, and I'm hardly exaggerating here when I tell you, just about every sport that you can think of, from golf to basketball to football to baseball the Olympics, the Tour de France, the Belmont Stakes, the Indianapolis 500. My goodness, he's been everywhere over the course of his time in broadcasting, and he's got some great stories to show for it. So next week, join me on the Super 70 Sports Podcast when my guest is Terry Gannon. So until next time, this is Ricky Cobb giving you the best advice that you're ever going to get which is to remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.